This is the Gender Card Podcast from Griffith University's Gender Equality Research Network. I'm Nance Haxton, and together we will speak to the vanguard of remarkable researchers breaking down the issues of gender equality, women's leadership and gender inclusivity in all realms of life. In February of this year, just as the full extent of the COVID-19 pandemic was becoming clear, a small group of academics came together from public health, international relations, public policy and development economics to analyse and address the gendered effects of COVID-19 and government responses to the outbreak. They had examined the crossovers between gender and health emergencies before, during previous outbreaks of Ebola, Zika and cholera. The team published a highly influential commentary on COVID-19 in The Lancet, titled The Gendered Impacts of the Outbreak. This led to the creation of the International Gender and COVID-19 Working Group, which now has more than 300 expert members who meet regularly. In June this year, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation funded the group to expand its rapid multi-method gender analysis of pandemic preparedness to include more countries. Today on the Gender Card podcast, I speak to three esteemed scholars from this working group, Dr Julia Smith, Professor Sarah Davies and Dr Claire Wenham, about how this research is informing the global public health response to the pandemic. Sarah, Julia and Claire, welcome to the Gender Card. Thank you for having us. So why is it important to look at the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic through a gender lens? Perhaps if we can start with you, Claire. Let me first start thinking about gender and COVID, or if you put someone on the street about it. The immediate reaction is, well, well, more men are dying of COVID, so why are we talking about women? And I actually think that's quite a short-sighted way to look at these issues. Because, yes, maybe more men are dying right now, and maybe the acute phase of the pandemic is going to lead to more men dying. But I think the downstream effects and the longer-term effects of this pandemic are definitely disproportionately going to affect women differently and perhaps worse and more severely than men. For example, we know that in previous outbreaks, more women have lost their jobs than men and that's because women tend to work in jobs which are less secure on part-time basis or without the stability of a kind of permanent full-time job so at the time of crisis whether that be a health crisis a humanitarian emergency a financial crisis it's often the first thing to go and we also know that poverty and not having economic security is a key driver of ill health so if we think about the long term, the, the secondary effects of this, women losing their jobs are de- is desperately going to lead to increased insecurity for a number of women and, you know, and children of these women, for example. And that's going to have significant effects across, across the health, economic and social sectors that we really need to consider now and push policymakers to really think about as they're designing their build back better strategies. Claire, is this something that you've noticed already, even in an economic powerhouse the size of the UK? Absolutely. So initial research that's coming out of the UK has shown that more women have been furloughed than men. So that's our government um, payment scheme to try and keep uh, people employed during lockdown. Uh, And it's definitely skewing towards women. So we're already seeing women being considered non-essential in terms of the workforce. 
And as the furlough scheme is due to end at the end of this year, we're expecting to, for many of those women to then be made redundant as that lifeline is then, is then drawn away. So we've got to really think about this and, and push governments to try and think of what's next. Right? How are we going to keep those women in employment? How are we going to keep those women trained to be able to respond? And the other big problem we have in the UK that's, that's teetering on a knife edge, and I know it mirrors a lot of the stuff in Canada, is that we have a childcare sector in the brink of collapse. And if that's not given a significant stimulus by the government or some sort of bailout package, when the inevitable recession happens, it's going to be one of the first things to go. And that's going to further limit women's economic employment opportunities. The childcare sector woes certainly have echoes that sound familiar, Sarah, to Australia and what is happening there at the moment. Yes, and I think what we also see is it's a very similar situation to what Claire's describing in the UK is also happening here, where economic stimulus packages tend to privilege male employment, the male-dominated workforce sectors. But we also see as well in a case like China, where what is happening is that gender stereotypes and gender norms are also a really important factor then, even in the absence of stimulus packages that may privilege men or women, What's happening there is that there's particular preferences with that are family-led around who should stay at home and do the caring and who's responsible to stay at home and make sure that the family has enough food and has is able to provide care for older members of family as well as younger members of family. And that usually leads to women having to do these jobs and not return, do these care roles and not return to work. Julia, is this something that you're noticing in Canada, in a, in a country as diverse as that as well, that uh, women are affected more than men by the social and economic effects of, of this outbreak? Definitely. So there's recently been a study done that shows that women in Canada are five times more likely to give up work to take care of children in the context of COVID than men. And that unemployment amongst women has increased more than amongst men during this period of the COVID crisis. So we're definitely seeing those impacts. We're also seeing that the majority of people losing work are women and particularly racialized women and women that represent minorities. And again, that comes back to what Claire referred to in terms of those people that are in precarious work, part-time work, short-term contracts. They are the ones that are losing work that don't have benefits and other supports to protect their employment rights or their income at this time. What do you hope will be able to be achieved through this fantastic new funding that has just been announced on the project through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation? Can you tell us about that? That's really going to expand the scope of our project. So we started off with initial funding from CHR and we were able to focus on four countries and now we're expanding into another five. And our analysis is going to be able to show not just the gendered impacts within those countries, but that are happening globally. Because we are seeing already a lot of trends are common across Canada, Hong Kong, China, the UK. And these are very different contexts, but in every context, we're seeing that women are losing employment, taking on the care burden, less represented in decision making. And so we're seeing that there's a global gender crisis happening at the same time or it's, that's being spurred by this COVID crisis. What do you hope perhaps could be achieved from the research? How do we battle this, this trend? Well, I think we, with this critical mass of researchers and you know, with leading researchers like Sarah and others around the world, we've 
got this massive expertise that can inform policymakers. We're hoping to develop tools and guidelines to help policymakers implement more gender-based responses to consider equity issues. And I think with this project, with the scale of it, the fact that we also, you know, have fostered this working group that is an amazing network of scholars and practitioners and implementers, there's a real power to promote greater gender-based analysis in policy development and in research, and hopefully then, you know, greater action to address some of these equity issues. Claire, is that what you hope for too, that, that governments at least start to consider the, the sex and gender effects of, of the COVID-19 outbreak? Getting governments to realise that there is a differential effect on, on men, women and, and non-binary genders on, in outbreaks, just as there are in humanitarian crisis and climate change. Um, you know, the, these, these things always affect different groups of people in a variety of ways. And so recognition is the first step. And quite often when I've been speaking to policymakers, they say to me, oh, but that sounds anecdotal, where's the evidence? And so we really hope that through all this research and having this really strong community of academics and practitioners, not just from our project, but through the wider working group that we have, will really produce a a really robust evidence base for policymakers anywhere in the world to show the commonalities of these gendered issues, as well as those which are specific to the context that we each uh, live and work in. And Claire, much as we are talking about the importance of the research, I, I don't think we can ignore the trending effect that you had recently and <laughs> what it illustrates perhaps about this debate. Well, I think we will put a link to this in the, in the podcast show notes, but certainly your interview with BBC went viral because of your child becoming involved. On reflection, what do you think this shows, I, I suppose, really, in what we're talking about here? That was a very weird experience. Um, <laughs> it's funny, I had a journalist ringing me asking me whether they thought that um well basically asking me where my husband was and why people weren't asking where my husband was and would that be different had I been a man compared to a woman you know the kind of gendered norms about who's supposed to be doing care and it, it kind of got me thinking like you know why are we still asking those questions right like it shouldn't matter like it shouldn't matter and and the fact that we are tells you a lot about society right but no one asks me where my partner was, but yet if it was a man, maybe they would. I think that, that raises some questions. But I think, you know, the reason it got to be you know, quite so mad was simply because everyone's living this at the moment, right? I mean, every mother, father, step-parent, grandparent, whoever it is looking after children at the moment is living this reality of having to juggle multiple things. My concern when you think about it in relation to our project is I don't think governments get that, Right. I certainly think in the UK, for example, our senior decision makers, our coronavirus task force, none of them are doing childcare, right? Even Boris Johnson, who's got a new baby, I mean, there's no way he's having any role in looking after that child. Because I think anyone who who is at home with kids and stuck in a house with kids all day long is experiencing these things all the time and would have thought about childcare and would have thought about the impact on parents, on single parents, right? I mean, you know, single mothers, we've been speaking to lots of single mothers in our research and my heart goes out to them. I don't know how they're coping trying to juggle any kind of employment at the moment alongside looking after children. So I think it's maybe, you know, Scarlett coming onto screen reveals something that everyone's going through. But I, as much as it was lighthearted entertainment, I think it reveals a much more significant problem of this is going to continue. 
right? And as we move into second waves and schools are supposed to be opening, for well, certainly for us in the Northern Hemisphere next month, and who knows if they're going to, right? And who knows how long this is going to go on for, that we're going to have to juggle work-life balance. And policymakers need to engage with that. Sarah Davies, with your international expertise on disease outbreaks, does this surprise you, shock you to see these intersections, the the commonality between such varying countries, even the way COVID-19 has rolled out with second waves has been quite different in each country. But it sounds like some of the effects on women are very similar. Well, as Julia said, that's one of the things that we're really proud of in our research, actually, is because what it's demonstrating is that a lot of the gender research that has been done up to this point often points to these problems and indicates these problems. But gender researchers can be very hard to do. And I think that's one of the things that we need to talk about and acknowledge that, you know, it requires often very really in-depth fieldwork methods and particularly in COVID at the moment that's an immense challenge to try and achieve. It also requires talking to people who like Claire said are already phenomenally busy and it also requires us getting access to data that is often not being collected because our lives and our situation or gender minorities lives and gender minority situation just isn't privileged in the data collection. It isn't always considered as being something that we need to consider in the sense of unpaid work are we calculating it are we thinking about its its cost its economic cost its economic contribution and we need to have a much more nuanced way in which we think about the rights of individuals and how sometimes their socioeconomic rights just not always being met and crisis exacerbates that and that's the thing that we've seen a lot of these people are already struggling what the crisis does, what the pandemic does, is magnify it. And that brings it back to as well, the policy gap is not just in the pandemic. The policy gap was before the pandemic. Julia, have we noticed differences or commonalities from smaller economies, such as Africa, that have dealt with these sort of disease outbreaks before? Or is this coronavirus really taking us on a different trajectory here? Have we been able to see that in this early stage of the research? I would say that the coronavirus is very unique. It is different than what we've experienced before. So if we think about recent public health crises, like Ebola in West Africa and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, like Zika in Brazil, those have primarily impacted lower and middle income countries. COVID is different in its you know, very extreme impacts in high income countries as well. And I think this is one of the reasons that we're seeing, you know, more attention to gender and equity issues because it's happening in high-income countries and women in high-income countries are being affected. And here in Canada, our economy is actually quite dependent on migrant labor that comes from other parts of the world. And that's being very much, you know, those workers are being highly affected by COVID and their migration and their ability to engage in our economy is being affected. So I think we're seeing very different global dynamics, because this is a very different type of virus that has spread in a very unique sort of way. So there's some opportunities definitely to learn from the past in terms of the impacts. But I think we also have to recognize how unique this situation is. Have you noticed this as well, Claire? Not just that previous health emergencies have impacted people in lower middle income countries, but who they've impacted in those lower middle income countries is also really important. So, for example, in the Zika outbreak, it was predominantly 
you know, the poorest, most marginalized black women in Northeast Brazil, which is already a very impoverished part of Brazil, who are most affected by it. And, you know, that's different to coronavirus because it's cutting across different types of women. It's cutting across different types of socioeconomic groups, different races. And yes, we're seeing that particular, you know, groups are more exposed and therefore at greater risk. But the downstream effects of the response, such as lockdown, such as not have not being able to go to school, schools being shut, it's cutting across all sectors of society. And so the actual the effects are a lot wider, reverberating than say Zika outbreak, which is particularly affecting a particular group. Julia, in your discussions, uh, you have regular discussions with the Canadian government about this. Do you think that this is starting to be taken into account, the gender effects, or are we still really having to, to push to get more of that data that, uh, that you've spoken of? So in Canada, our government has a feminist international assistance policy and aims to incorporate gender-based analysis throughout its policies. I saw a recent evaluation um, done about gendered based responses with it across a number of different OECD countries. And Canada was actually ranked at the top. However, I would say that it's a very low bar. Um, and so I think that there are people in our government that are trying to engage um, in these discussions. There has been funding dedicated to um, addressing gender-based violence, and there has been funding dedicated to supporting women entrepreneurs. Um, there's a lot of gaps. So for example, the data that we collect in, can in Canada is disaggregated by sex and by gender. So it includes non-binary genders, which I think is quite unique. However, it's not disaggregated by race or ethnicity. And that's a huge gap, a huge gap. So I think we're starting to consider this in a meaningful way, but there's so much, so much farther to go. And what about in Australia, Sarah? Are we uh, seeing some progress there? I would say that in the Australian case, we are echoing what Julia is seeing. I would probably say we're maybe slightly behind Canada in this space, particularly in the aid space. We've identified uh gender in the health security response as being one of the three priorities and there's definitely an effort to try and address that but we're not seeing additional injection of funds and the one thing that we're seeing at the moment with this outbreak is that the funding cycle is actually under a lot of strain and pressure and it's in an environment where there was already not a lot of aid money circulating in the Australian case in terms of Australia domestically, again, I think we're seeing the similar types of issues that Julia was referring to, which is that we've got sex disaggregated data, uh, but what we don't have is a clear, um, that's emerging, but up until this point, we hadn't really thought about race and income and ethnicity as stratifications that we need to consider when thinking about COVID risk. And I think um, that's emerging at the moment, particularly because of the way the outbreak has occurred in Victoria um, and the way in which some of the cluster outbreaks have occurred in New South Wales. So that attention and that awareness is starting to grow and build. But I also think that points to that social behavioural awareness of how outbreaks work that sometimes the medical, the public health and the scientific community are aware of, but don't always privilege when they're thinking about how to 
address a pandemic or how to address an outbreak that that seems to be something that you deal with or manage later and again what this outbreak is showing is that if you think that's something you can put off you're not actually containing the outbreak because people are social economic creatures and they're not always going to necessarily follow or are not in a position to follow the medical advice or the prevention advice that they're being given. So we need to get better at that. What strikes me from what you've all been telling me is that the effects on women, uh, the, the gendered effects of this outbreak are far ranging. I think many people, when they first think of it, think, of course, schools closing, being forced to work from home, but it is far more extensive than that. Everything we've spoken about so far has been focused on women's well as caregivers and women's economic empowerment and economic security. We haven't even touched upon the impact on women's health, for example, and are women going to be able to access safe sexually reproductive health services? So we've seen across the world that supply issues with some contraception and not being able to get near having wild stockouts across the world of being able to access contraception. We've also seen women not wanting to go to healthcare clinics to seek contraception or other reproductive health services because they see hospital clinics as a, as a point of transmission. And we've seen, you know, in some cases, we've seen governments, you know, use the coronavirus outbreak and instrumentalize it to push you know, more aggressive uh, abortion, abortion, abortion policy, for example, like we saw in the U.S., where abortions or in some states of the U.S., abortion was deemed a non-essential service. And therefore, during the pandemic, it hasn't been available. Uh, and then think about, you know, women's uh, about maternity care and natal provision. The evidence is so extensive to show that the more antenatal care you get, that leads to better birth outcomes for mother and for baby. And during the outbreak, certainly in, in several countries in the world, all antenatal services have been moved online. So women aren't getting those services. And if they are, they're heavily reduced. And so what impact is that going to have on birth outcomes. I mean, I'm, I, I think it's still maybe too early to see the extent of that, but that could be a real concern, particularly in countries which haven't got fully functioning health systems or health systems on the brink of, of collapse. I think that's going to be a real, real concern to watch out for going forward. And the surge in domestic violence as well, is that being seen across countries? Completely globally. It's been, you know, it's been such a constant and we still don't even have the data for that. So talking about data around around who's getting infected, the only real data we've got for uh, domestic violence at the moment either comes from calls to helplines, which are kind of a proxy indicator, but we think that's just the tip of the iceberg because most people, if you're still in lockdown with your abuser, aren't going to pick up a phone and tell someone about it. Um, and, or you can look at, at femicide rates which are also going up, um, particularly in Latin America at the moment. So you can kind of paint a picture, but we've got no idea of the real, the real burden of it. But what we do know from what we've got is that it is going up at an alarming rate. Julie, would you like to comment on that as well? I think that the attention that's been playing to gender-based violence and domestic violence in the context of COVID is really important because... Again, this is a case of COVID exacerbating a problem that already existed. The people that are experiencing violence in their homes right now were experiencing violence in their homes before. And 
it is becoming worse because they're limit they're limited on how they can move they're limited on how they can access help but it is exposing a pre-existing crisis and if anything hopeful can come out of this maybe it's that there's been this increased attention to this issue and in some cases more resources directed towards it but i think i know here in canada that the domestic violence crisis is very much related to a housing crisis, which is related to broader socioeconomic issues. And these are big, big challenges to address. But I think this crisis is exposing that we need to address them now. To pull together our discussion today, I was struck by what the World Health Organization chief, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, warned that there may never be a silver bullet for COVID-19. Um, what could that possibly mean for, for these trends that we are discussing here today? The problem is that, that these trends aren't insurmountable if there's political will to try and combat them, right? It's not like like gender differences and gender inequality is something which is just being created by the crisis. You know, this is something that's happened, but there are strategies that you can put in place. You can try and ensure stimulus packages to get women back to work or training programs or, uh, you know, back to work programs. If they lose their jobs, you can try and maintain women's employment and, and ensure that there's equality around who's being made redundant in a crisis. There's ways you can ensure women continue to access maternal health care, sexual reproductive health care through, for example, moving services out of the clinic and out of hospitals into safe spaces. So there are things that can happen if this pandemic does indeed go on for many years. You've just got to get policymakers committed to doing that and recognizing the impact that their decisions have doing that or not doing that and getting them to see that actually this is fundamental to a healthy society. And I think it's, you know, it's important to actually see some concrete actions. If we think about this outbreak continuing to ripple along for a while, I know that as a parent and lots of parents that I talk to, we're all very stressed about what this means in terms of childcare and school. And when the crisis first hit, it was like, okay, emergency response, we'll try homeschooling or we'll get friends to help, or, you know, you try to come up with things. But now we're looking ahead. We need to think about what it really means to ask people to do care work and paid work at the same time. And in our research project, we've been interviewing people that are struggling with this. And I remember one woman saying to me, she's like, everyone knows it's, this is impossible. Like everyone knows it is impossible to take care of a toddler and do your job at the same time. But they're asking us to do it and they're not giving us any help. And so we need to come up with ways to help those people, right? We've, we've got to come up with creative childcare solutions or creative education plans. And as Claire said, I don't think that's impossible but if this is going to ripple on, that has to be addressed. I think we also need to come up with more creative ways in which we think about what is a productive economy. And that's a big long-term project, right? But what the pandemic is identifying at the moment is that a lot of people can work from home, uh, but they're also still having to do work at home. So they're working on their job at home and they're also having to do you know, care work at home. But there's also a large number of people who can't do that. So, you know, one of the things that we found in, the, in a paper that we wrote, which was that women dominate a lot of the positions, the employment that are high risk infection. And that's, again, something that you see 
around the world. So the nurse, so if we think about healthcare workers, if we think about teachers, if we think about those kind of retail industry type jobs, including, you know, marketplaces, so women for in a lot of low and middle income countries, they're in the informal economy, but it requires access to markets. They're particularly, those groups are very vulnerable to the outbreak because by nature of the fact that they've got to be doing work that puts them in constant contact with people who may be infected. There's gendered stereotypes around these jobs as well. And what the pandemic has illustrated is that we don't really privilege these jobs a lot. We don't realise how much time and effort these jobs take. And we don't really talk about the fact that these jobs are mostly populated by women and they are keeping our economies going right now. And that comes back to, again, you know, what Claire and Julia were saying is before, which is that the people in the positions of policy may not have ever had these jobs or had to carry out these jobs and don't realise the juggle that's required, the risk that it involves, but also just the income precarity, because sometimes these individuals are now the sole income earners in their family. Claire, how challenging has it been to manage a project of this scope, this multinational research project. Can you uh, tell us about that? So it's certainly not without its challenges. Um, But I think, you know, the first thing to say is we have a terrific group of researchers working on this project across all the different locations we're working in, which really makes it manageable and bearable to have such a great great team of friends and colleagues that, that get together. There's been challenges mainly around different types of approaches to how we we work on this. So we're a very multidisciplinary team. So we have international relations people, we have health systems people, we have health economists. And getting people to approach the same topic, but with very different disciplines, I think is going to lead to a much richer project and a much richer output. But it's definitely led to many more conversations than I was expecting about how we're actually going to do it and the methodologies. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but I think, you know, given everything we've been talking about around people's time and care and paid and unpaid work, it's definitely adding to that. Uh, you know, we also have lots of late night calls or around an early morning calls. I mean, you know, we're well used to 6 a.m. and 11 p.m. calls to try and manage across time zones, which has been an added bit of fun. How did you and Julia come together in this and how have you coordinated that? A year ago? I wrote an article about gender and infectious disease outbreaks um, and I published it in Gender and Development and then Claire, who I did not know, had never worked with before, contacted me and she just said, hey, that was a really nice article. Thank you for writing it. And I think that's important because I think as academics, we don't reach out to each other enough and we don't compliment each other's work enough and we don't kind of try and reach out and build partnerships with people, especially maybe in different parts of the world and so on. So it was really nice that Claire wrote to me and then we had a conversation about our mutual research interests and we said, you know, we should work on a project together, but what would that be? And one of the struggles we identified was that there's so little data on gender and infectious disease outbreaks. And we're like, there's just, there's not the data. And it's, you know, it hasn't been collected in the past. We can't collect it unless there's an opportunity. And then COVID hit and there was an opportunity to actually start collecting data on how people of different genders are impacted about policy responses. So Claire and I, you know, connected around that and then said, okay, who else do we bring on board? And 
it was just amazing to see this team come together. We had two weeks to put together the first proposal and we got this great team together and since then, I don't even know what's happened because it's all happened so fast. Thank you so much, Sarah Davies, Julia Smith and Claire Wenham for this fantastic discussion today and highlighting these inequities that are becoming so stark in this global pandemic. Thank you for joining the Gender Card today. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Gender Card. This podcast was produced for the Gender Equality Research Network by Nance Haxton with production assistance from Michael Adams. Stay up to date with this Griffith University podcast on SoundCloud. Speak to you again soon.